0: As always, I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with all of you this morning. I always consider these times with you a privilege, so thank you. There's an old Chinese proverb that states, be not afraid of growing slowly, be afraid only of standing still. I'm going to talk about grief and loss this morning. And if there's ever a time in our lives when we end up standing still, it's during times of grief and loss. And so my intent this morning is to help us understand how grief and loss, even devastating grief and loss, rather than causing us to stand still, can actually facilitate great growth. I wrote a book a number of years ago entitled, In Autumn's Journey, Deep Growth in the Grief and Loss of Life's Seasons, and I'll be drawing from that book a bit this morning. I ended up writing this particular book for a number of reasons, and unfortunately, I don't have the time to go into those reasons this morning. Suffice it to say, I've had my own grief and loss. And for 42 years, I've walked with thousands upon thousands of people through their grief and loss. And obviously, all of that created some motivation to write. In reality, however, the thing that really created the impetus For me to take on the task of writing a book about grief and loss was The Unexpected Death of My Own Mother on October 14th of 2007. And in those final hours of her life on her deathbed, I promised her that I would write. And I made that promise to her because for years she had encouraged me to write. And so the journey from her deathbed to her funeral to closing out her personal affairs and effects, to visiting her graveside on a cold Christmas day some two years later. All of that is the journey that's outlined in this book. Now, time this morning only affords me the opportunity to really say a few very brief things of the many things that I would like to say to you on the subject of grief and loss. But the premise that undergirds everything that I'm going to say to you this morning is simply this there is great purpose in great pain there is great purpose in great pain so in order to build a foundation to support this premise i'm going to pull several different thoughts together first i want to talk about pain as tremendous opportunity then i want to talk briefly about how and why we miss those opportunities And once I have those two thoughts in place, I want to share with you two basic ideas, two principles that you can begin to incorporate into your own times of grief and loss to turn your pain into great gain. So as I said a moment ago, my premise here this morning is that there is great purpose in great pain. My premise is that grief and loss is one of the grandest places within which God does his grandest work. It is, frankly, my conviction that in the deepest pain, God does the deepest work. Now, I don't say that lightly. I stand here today as a testimony to my own grief and loss as well as the grief and loss of the thousands I have walked dark times and dark roads with. And I can unreservedly tell you that there is great purpose in great pain, and that includes your pain. The introduction of an autumn's journey sums up the thought that there is great purpose in great pain. And so in order to expedite this for you, let me read a brief paragraph from the introduction to shape what I'm going to say. It reads this way. In the convulsions of that month, as well as the death that was to follow, there was a provoking yet compelling need within me that strove to make sense of this, to build into and out of this experience something that made the experience worthwhile and gave it meaning. It seemed more than lost that within this time and this loss, There lay priceless clues to life and doors to a deeper understanding regarding the journey that we're all on. In time, there emerged a profound richness that did not take away the pain or erase the loss. Rather, it provided something of inestimable value that seemed to be complete only if it were shared with others. So as a result of the many dynamics surrounding my mom's death, There was a foundational shift that occurred in my thinking regarding grief and loss that I want to suggest to you today. That shift involved moving away from a mentality of processing grief and loss as something to escape from or to be healed from and to begin to see grief and loss as something to grow from. To see grief and loss as a profound and priceless opportunity to let our losses be our biggest opportunities for growth. It seems to me that God is a phenomenal opportunist and I remain completely convinced that grief and loss, while terribly painful, while sometimes completely overwhelming, runs incredibly deep with unknown, unrecognized, and untapped opportunity. But we miss those priceless opportunities and we thereby bypass and forfeit the immense growth that could have been ours. So to begin, I want to briefly put forth a concept, a basic concept, a way of thinking that won't expand your view of pain, but will expand your view of what can be done with your pain. Now to do that, I'm going to draw from a couple of places. In First Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9, Paul writes, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard. No mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. The implication here is that there is a reality that we can't conceive. Our ability to ascertain this thing that we call life has severe limitations. We can only see just so far, and that isn't very far. We can only hear just so much, and that isn't very much. And we can only know scant pieces and parts of whatever life is. The assumption that I must embrace is that what I don't know is infinitely greater and vastly larger than what I do know. The Christian philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal wrote, the last function of reason is to recognize that there are an infinity of things which surpass it. That beyond my limited limits of my understanding, there lies a vastness that I can't even begin to conceptualize. That even if I take the sum total of everything that I know and everything that I understand and everything that a lifetime of study and experience and observation and education would grant me, and if I gather all of that stuff together, that even then there is an infinite expanse of realities out there whose edges I can barely touch, if touch at all. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9, God articulates this dichotomy. He says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so there are two extremely different sets of ways and two very different sets of thoughts, ours and God's. One is confined, and the other is entirely undefined. And because I am the one that is confined, what I don't know will have a vastly greater bearing on my life than what I do know. That the resources that I possess are but a thin slice, a tiny fragment, a very minute shard of what actually exists and what is actually available to me. That God is infinite and therefore endless and therefore without any limits, and therefore possessing endless options and able to create innumerable possibilities, all of which effectively eliminates any notion of the impossible whatsoever. And what would happen if I plugged my grief and my loss and my pain into all of that? Clearly, what I don't know will have a vastly greater bearing on my life than what I do know. So how do we conceptualize grief and loss anyway? Uh, Let's take the concept of what we don't know is infinitely greater than what we do know and use it as a template of sorts and place it over the whole reality of grief and loss and the pain that's a part of all of that. Now, to give you an example of how this concept applies specifically to grief and loss, let's go to the book of Job. In Job chapter 42, verse 3, Job chapter 42, verse 3. But before we read that verse, let's build some thought in and around it so that we can fully grasp what Job is saying. Throughout the book of Job, Job and his three friends spend chapter after chapter after chapter rigorously applying the limitations of human understanding to the pain and the loss that Job experienced. They take the death of Job's children and the loss of his wealth and his deteriorating physical condition and they play out endless scenarios in order to make sense of it all. And in the end, after all of that discussion, with the rigorous application of human logic and the limitations of human understanding applied to Job's grief and loss and pain, they draw a completely wrong, entirely misguided conclusion And in doing that, they miss everything that God was doing. What God wanted drawn out of that time of grief and loss in Job's life was completely and entirely missed. And that's because it was all done within the confines of human knowledge. It was never explored out in the vastness of God and who God is and what he does. It was never put in a place outside of human logic in the belief that maybe there's an explanation or a rationale that they simply couldn't conceive that was, in reality, far better and far superior. That there's a vaster plan that makes incredible sense and is wonderfully rich, but it lies outside of the realm of their thinking. They didn't understand that what they didn't know had a vastly greater bearing on their lives than what they did know. An unknown author wrote, a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Most of the time we don't want to make the turn because in making the turn we're headed off to some place we don't want to go. The road rolls off out of our line of sight and it isn't following the course that we demand it go. We like roads that are straight and smooth and humanly logical. And so we try to force them straight and smooth. And that is what Job and his friends did. They didn't understand that what they didn't know had a vastly greater bearing on their lives than what they did know. H. Jackson Brown Jr. wrote, If you know someone who tries to drown their sorrows, you might tell them sorrows know how to swim. In other words, if you try to make the road what you want the road to be, it will never really be a road. And without a road you'll be lost. We try to force things within the confines of what we know. So at the end of this period of immense grief and pain and loss that Job went through, as he tried to make sense of the loss that seemed senseless, at the end of wrestling with all the savagery and unfairness and brutality of what he'd experienced, God showed up, And put Job's situation outside of human logic and into the vastness of God and his plan. God showed Job a road he had resisted. God showed Job that what he didn't know was vastly greater and had a vastly greater bearing on his life than what he did know. And finally, standing in awe of what God was in reality doing in Job's grief and loss and the road he had completely missed, in Job chapter 42, verse 3, he says this. Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And why did he say that? Because God stepped in and said, there are things that you don't see that you don't understand, that are beyond your line of sight and your road. And because they are, you forced your situation into your line of sight and a road that you could see down. You failed to recognize that what you don't know has a vastly greater bearing on your life than what you do know. And in doing that, you killed what I wanted to give you in this time of great grief and loss. And so, how many times... Have we forced the understanding or explanation of our situation into our terribly limited lines of sight and roads that don't bend? How many times have we failed to apply the reality that what we don't know has a vastly greater bearing on our lives and our pain than what we do know? How many times have we demanded an explanation for why things have gone the way that they have? And so we manage and manipulate and rationalize our pain, our grief, our loss, the unfairness of our situations, our deep sense of injustice, our unwillingness to move on without whatever it is that we've lost, and in doing so... We end up with some sort of twisted explanation that does nothing to help us grow that probably actually diminishes us instead and certainly does nothing to provide us any resolution and is nothing of what God wanted to do. We not only kill what God wanted to do in our lives, we miss that he wanted to do anything in the first place. And so we walk on as wounded people questioning God, Questioning life and questioning ourselves. And it all happens because we refuse to believe that something far greater exists that we simply can't see. And our grief and loss and pain, we fail to understand that what we don't know has a vastly greater bearing on our lives than what we do know. And because we refuse to embrace that reality, what God wanted to do is killed. And all that's left of something that was so promising and filled with promise is now something toxic and limp and dead. Rossiter Worthing Raymond wrote, Life is eternal and love is immortal and death is only a horizon and a horizon is nothing save the limit of our sight. A horizon is nothing save the limit of our sight. If a horizon is really nothing more than the limit of my sight, and if a horizon is really the stepping off point to thousands of other horizons beyond that, that themselves go on to thousands of other horizons, then I am forced to live with the reality and with the fact that my reality is but one horizon of thousands. So then, where do I work out my grief and loss? within the horizon I can see, if I do that, it likely won't end well. You see, God designed us to live a life of a thousand horizons, to realize that what we don't know has a vastly greater bearing on our lives than what we do. And at mom's death, that, that is where I found myself. And that is where God had ample space to use great pain for great growth. Now, to pull all those thoughts together, in chapter 12 of An Autumn's Journey, I wrote this. Sometimes we need to stand aside and make way for the miraculous. Sometimes we need to give life the audacious permission to live outside the suffocating restraints of our understanding. Sometimes we need to exercise faith enough to believe in what we can't see and to invest in the very things that defy our imaginations. Sometimes... We need to let things come to a culmination that relinquishes a cherished past and sets us on a course to an unknown but completely charted future. Look, if we understand that what we don't know will have a vastly greater bearing on our lives than what we do know, God will do great things in and through whatever pain you're walking with or will ever walk with. So let's talk about God's plan for our pain You know, if we're willing to work out our grief and loss outside of ourselves and give God space to do great things in our grief and loss, there's some old thoughts and beliefs that we need to adjust a bit. You know, I find that we tend to make God the ultimate feel-good experience. We think that God is about rescue and protection because we feel that anything less would be cruel and hardly loving, or so we believe. Our prayer in times of grief and loss is too often that God would take it all away. And when he doesn't take it all away, we presume that he didn't hear us, or he's not invested in us, or maybe that he's not there. Frank Clark wrote, If you can find a path with no obstacles, it probably doesn't lead anywhere. God is not interested in paths that go to nowhere. And he doesn't want you walking them. We must step outside of ourselves and our limited lines of sight and our predictable roads and realize that God's intent for our lives and our pain is infinitely more powerful and more profound than simply protection from pain and the eradication of pain. Far more powerful and far more profound. Look, God is massive enough and intentional enough to live right in the middle of our pain and seize pain's attributes for phenomenal growth. So we must replace the notion that God is all about rescue with a far greater truth that he is much more about remarkable growth. In a terribly desperate but terribly profound moment, Jesus said, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world. As God's love was designed to be inserted into the world's pain to work pain against itself for our good. God's mission is not to take away your pain. His mission and his passion is to take everything that pain is and use it to bring unexpected and unimaginable growth to your life. James seized the idea in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when he wrote, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God doesn't live with the insecurities that demand that he eliminate pain in order to ensure his survival or ours. God is able to handily overpower pain and use pain's energy against pain's intent seizing the power of pain and bending it to our growth so that we lack nothing. God has the absolute power to change the force, direction, and the nature of pain so that we gain so very much more than simply the elimination of pain. We end up having pain used to our profit in God's pursuit of our perfection. Let me say that again so you hear it. We end up having pain used to our profit in God's pursuit of our perfection. We gain pain's power turned in our favor. And when that happens, we reap growth unimagined rather than having squandered the power of pain by its removal. As Paul puts it, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. God's plan doesn't involve the eradication of pain for the waste that such an action would cause. Why? Why throw out something that produces so much growth in our lives? Kenji Maziana wrote, we must embrace pain and burn it as fuel for our journey. There's no question that pain is painful, sometimes devastatingly painful. Of course, it's painful, but that's where the energy and the potential comes from. Pain is a precious resource, and instead of squandering that resource by simply removing it or deadening it, God inserts himself into the middle of all of mankind's sordid pain to use every ounce of its potential for our advantage. God did not eradicate pain. He subdued it, and he forged it into a tool that would forge us into his image. And if that's truly the case then I want to step beyond my line of sight and into God's thousand horizons. I want to take His road, even if it takes turns that make no sense to me. I want to live out the reality that what I don't know has a vastly greater bearing on my life than what I do know. So, how do we actually act on the belief that there is great purpose in great pain? How? How do we engage Our pain in a manner that believes that God forges pain into a tool that forges us into his image. How? How do we see beyond our lines of sight and around the bends in the roads that we all walk? How do we all live in the reality that what we don't know has a vastly greater bearing on our lives than what we do know? How do we do all of that? Well, this morning I only have time to share two very brief ideas with you that will help you begin to step out of your line of sight in your times of grief and loss, to embrace roads that take unexpected turns, to seize other horizons, to allow God to bring purpose in your pain. And by embracing these two concepts, you will begin to allow God to take your grief and loss and do really great things with it. First, we, we find ourselves fighting against ourselves. We have to release as freedom to grieve rather than fight against ourselves. So. To appreciate most things, if you think about it, we have to let them go. Some things become more precious by their absence. When you lose something, you grieve the loss, and the exercise of grief can be brutally hard. But at the same time, appreciation for the thing that is lost is dramatically enhanced in a kind of give-and-take exchange. Somehow making something temporal makes it precious. Life is really not based on the holding of anything. In his work, Meditations, Marcus Aurelius wrote that life is nothing else but change, and change is nature's delight. Holding on to something renders you captive to whatever that thing, or that place, or that time, or that person is. Life that is held is life that is stagnant, and life that is stagnant is not life. Life rolls on because it must, because it was designed that way. It's ever fresh, always bringing the resources of the past into the present in order to enrich the future. It's a process that's always moving. And we must move with it, embracing both the things that exit our lives as well as those that enter our lives. In addition, if we hold the past we can't simultaneously seize the future. Our grasp will be directed in one place or the other. Our energies will be vested in holding on to misty mementos locked in an unalterable past. Or we can take a firm hold of a future that is unwritten and therefore entirely uncumbered. Letting go lets us grieve. It lets life do what God designed life to do. Letting go allows us to run in the natural currents of life, therefore resting in the fact that whatever the outcome, it will be good and right because God is good and right. In Luke chapter 17, verse 33, Luke writes, if you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you'll lose it. But if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms. Releasing gives us freedom to grieve and it gives God the freedom to work the pain in our lives for his purpose. Therefore, we must let go. Secondly, we need to process grief by escorting our losses to the next place. We not only need to let our losses go, we must also escort them to the next place that they're supposed to go. And that is a terribly painful step, but a terribly rich one. An unknown author wrote, don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. We not only let go of our loss, but we escort our losses to the next place. We take the terribly selfless stance of letting go, and then... Moving the thing that we've let go of on to whatever place it's designed to go. To illustrate this point most effectively, I want to read a page out of An Autumn's Journey. I want to paint a picture for you so that you can fully grasp this ideal. It reads this way. The call had come in the night. Mom was passing. They said that her heartbeat had softened and her breathing drifted ever shallower. The final goodbye was racing toward us, framed and counted not in days or even hours, but in mere minutes. Minutes remain the same length, whether they are held against the span of years or minutes themselves. Yet, when minutes are held against themselves, they seem so terribly brief. Minutes were all that was left. The assemblage of minutes would not be sufficient for us to arrive in time. She would pass minutes before we stepped in the door. However, Dad had spent the night, recognizing this to likely be the last of over 50 years of nights with his wife. His own humility would preclude his ever disclosing his actions during those final minutes as they slipped by, draped in sullen shadows, both in the room and in his heart. The picture of mom passing was painted by a nurse who found something special in this moment. She had witnessed the passing of thousands, yet this turn of life unexpectedly pulled her heart tender and moved her to tears. In her own emotion, she drew us aside and etched with deep words those last moments, handing us in those few seconds a picture most remarkable. Peering into the room during those last minutes, she saw Dad's hand laid on Mom's chest, wanting desperately to feel the last few beats, hoping to carry away with him something of the last of her life to add to the bounty of what had been lived with her. There was a desperation born of a heartfelt passion to grab even the slightest final thread to add one more facet to the massive tapestry woven over their 50 years together. The nurse said that his eyes never left her, not for the briefest moment. He gently kissed her on the forehead over and over, loving her out of this life and into the next, sending with her the unmistakable message of his love and undying devotion Trembling hands pressed upon hers, he loved her and prayed her into the kingdom. He did nothing out of greed or loss. There was no anger, no attention to the angst that ground his heart to a parched powder. Inside, he was dying right along with her, while being left alive in his own emotional death to face life without her. There was no focus on any of these things. Neither did he pay attention to the horrendous loss that was raining into his life as an emotional downpour of torrential proportions. There was only the love of a simple man who escorted his wife into eternity in the finest, most unselfish manner that one can conceive, obediently handing her off to a God who is calling her home while temporarily leaving Dad here. It was all beautifully selfless. In the soft shadows, a husband released his wife with all the costs of doing so suffocating and simultaneously rocking at gentle heart. Dad let it be so. His total focus was on escorting a beloved wife to the edge of this life and allowing her to step over, leaving him on this side terribly alone. I watched him raise himself immeasurably above himself, take his wife by the hand, and selflessly escort her out of this life into the next one. Awe swept over me, humbling me and stunning me all at once. Once she was fully escorted out of this life and his task was completed, he turned, bent over, and cried. we grieve most effectively when we accept our loss and then boldly take the extra and terribly selfless step of escorting our losses out of our lives and into the next. Escorting our losses demands a letting go of whatever was lost and foregoing the implications of that loss in order to set ourselves aside momentarily to escort that loss home. When faced with the enormity of such a task, it all seems impossibly impossible. It would even appear to border on the ridiculous, but it creates great space for God to do great things. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, I ask not for a lighter burden, but for broader shoulders. Escorting our losses frames the grieving process at the very outset in ways that lays a precious and vital foundation for effective grieving and profound healing. It gives God space to do a great work in our lives by freeing us from that loss while allowing us the privilege of moving that loss forward. Now I've a number of thoughts this morning. I want to take a moment and pull them all together in a manner that hopefully drives home what I'm saying. To do that, let me leave you with a thought and this story. Back in my days as a youth pastor, an extremely insecure 16-year-old wandered into my youth group. She was one of those wounded souls, one of those desperately damaged people that you look at and wonder what, if any, hope exists for them. Over time, though, Wendy became something of a daughter. She never quite meshed with the rest of the kids in the youth group, but she gradually drifted toward me and eventually developed a deep connection that would have impacted both of our lives. Over the four years that we had, she grew, she matured. She came to Christ. She blossomed. She became vigorous. She set out to minister to other kids. She did the very thing that is absolutely marvelous. She grew in ways that I could not have foreseen or even remotely imagined. Deep growth emerged from her own deep pain. She blew past her own line of sight and embraced a thousand horizons. And when the road turned out of sight, she ran down it anyway. This young girl was transformed, literally transformed in ways that made her story a truly miraculous one and then Wendy was diagnosed with cancer. Her journey over the months ahead was one of painful surgeries, repeatedly failed treatments, deterioration that was sometimes slow and at other times frighteningly fast. Wendy died at a tender 21 years of age. On an airplane flying back from her funeral, a funeral that I had the privilege to speak at, I began an article that I published several years later. And I'd like to read a portion of that article to you this morning as I close. It reads this way. She was 19 when the doctor clipped the x-ray onto the fluorescent panel in front of her. Even to the untrained eye, it was unmistakable. Like a venomous snake coiling its slithering body around its victim, cancer had wrapped its cold hands around her esophagus and thrust its pointed fingers deep into her lungs. Cancer was laying claim to her life. Her name was Wendy. Sitting in the waiting room only a few feet away, I was about to share in a journey that would impact my own journey forever. At that moment, in that darkened room, a few steps away, with the black and misty gray shadows of that X-ray playing back across her face, Wendy's world stopped. Staring into the shades of gray and black, her entire existence imploded, suddenly becoming the sum total of that one muddled gray X-ray that silently screamed the awful reality. The doctor took down the X-ray, held it for a moment, and walked away. Months of treatment passed. Nights of wrenching pain when chemotherapy brought convulsions as it coursed through her body with its poison seeking out the cancer. Cold, hard tables upon which she laid as beams of invisible radiation were shot into her body, leaving her without hair and terribly emaciated from its cruel side effects. Tremors and vomiting, deep hopelessness, a disabling helplessness. The effort to save her became worse than the dying that she sought to avoid. Finally, the efforts of man played themselves out, placing her beyond the technology of men and at the mercy of cancer's cold hands and pointed fingers. However, God is splendidly unpredictable. In one remarkable moment, He used the ugliness of cancer to birth a vision in her life. In his loving and perfect wisdom, he laid his hand on her dying body, not to heal it, but to place a picture in her mind that would birth a far greater healing. It was not a beautiful picture at all, but for Wendy, it was the perfect picture. It was the image of the x-ray that had cast its gray shadows on her face and her life so many months earlier. Slowly, she began to see the world in that x-ray. Not the cancer that it revealed so profoundly, but the color. Much like that x-ray, she saw the world as filled with misty grays and blotches of black. The x-ray had no depth, no vibrancy, no brilliant hues. She realized that a world without Christ was veiled with those very same colors. Her life was not something stolen by this disease. It was the disease that showed her how much sin had stolen from the world and how gray it had left it all. Wendy was an extremely gifted artist. She realized that this artistic gift had been given precisely for this moment. Weak and emaciated, she gathered her brushes, assembled her paints, and pulled her weakening body up to an easel With one arm rendered completely useless due to prolonged radiation treatments, she took her one good arm and put her brush to the canvas. Each painful stroke was filled with the compulsion to leave her world something of beauty, something that would lift out the brilliant colors that God had placed in her soul and splash them across the canvas for all to see. For those last Two months. She painted prolifically. I often sat beside her as she created works of art that had a life to them that defied the death that was quickly overtaking her. She painted in a prolific mix of rich colors and beautiful tones. I sat and watched her pour into the, her paintings the very life force that she was losing. The last painting that she began was never finished. The artist was to succumb to the cold hands of cancer before the piece was completed. It was a serene sketch of two Canadian geese smoothly breaking the mirrored surface of a lake. It was a painting full of potential and rich with possibility. However, it will never be finished. The life of the artist from which it sprung was spent before it could be given over to the painting. Today, this painting sits in my office, forever uncompleted, as it should be. It reminds me of the millions of lives around me that are gray, lifeless, and flat. Often the deathly gray appearance of many of the lives that I encounter in the world would lead me to believe that there is no hope for color. Yet, this unfinished repainting reminds me that each of those lives is full of potential and rich with possibility, just like that painting and the artist from whose soul it sprung. You see, pain is one of God's brushes. It's the way that He brings completion to our lives. It's the way that He brings color and depth and deep hues and brilliance and vibrancy. If we let it. there is great purpose and great pain. My many journeys, mom being one and Wendy being another another, in a whole host of losses and pain, some horrendous and some less than horrendous, so many that I don't have the time to go into all of them, are all things that I would much prefer to do without. But they are all the things through which God has done his most remarkable work. There is great purpose and great pain. Indeed, There is remarkable purpose in your pain as well. May God bless you as you allow him to take your pain and do absolutely phenomenal things in your life with that very pain.